Revelation 19. This is the word of Almighty God. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, as the sound of many waters, and as the sound of mighty thunderings, saying, Alleluia! For our Lord God omnipotent reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, Right blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true sayings of God. And I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, See that you do not do that. I am your fellow servant and of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head there were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. And he was clothed with a robe dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. And the armies of heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we ask that you would now speak to us through this word which we have heard, that you would drive home to us the glory of your Son and the certainty we have in him. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week we began looking at this great wedding feast. We've seen it finally arrive. Uh, For some of us, I think there's really two types of of us probably in the room. Some of you, the whole time we've been in Revelation, have been waiting for the millennium and uh, uh, the beasts and the things like that. You you want the puzzle pieces put together and to look at the weird and uh, uh, terrifying maybe uh, issues in the book. And then the other half of you have just been waiting to get to the wedding. And that's all you really want to get to in the book. You want to get to, ch- you want to, get to the last chapter, and, and this is just a nice pit stop along the way. Um, but we really have those two themes brought together throughout the whole book, and, and we have it brought together 
uh, here. But last week we began looking at this, this wedding feast finally arriving. We saw that the host, God the Father, is there. He's there in heaven and his guests are singing his praises. We saw the bride is there. She's on time and she's dressed appropriately and gloriously because her tailor is the Holy Spirit. And so she is dressed in fine linen of good works, righteous and clean. But where's the groom? Did you think that last week as we read those early verses up through 9? The groom isn't mentioned. Where is the groom? Well, this morning I want to start by just walking through, kind of bullet pointing a bunch of these descriptions of the groom under two categories, his appearance and his names. I want to just fly through those, hopefully uh, fairly quickly, looking at the description of him. And then I want to step back and uh, together, putting all that together, understand the drama and the glory of the groom's arrival in this passage. So we can start with the groom's appearance. He appears on a white horse. Verse 11. And a horse would depict warfare in apocalyptic literature. It's the idea, as opposed to Solomon. Remember Solomon, what did he ride? He rode on a donkey. The Prince of Peace. Uh, Peacetime. There wasn't warfare during Solomon's days. David did all of that. Uh, you can look in the book of Judges and some of those one-line judges. Uh, so-and-so had, I think, seven sons, and each of his seven sons rode on seven donkeys, and they rode around giving peaceable judgment. The idea is that there weren't Moabites for these judges to fight. There weren't Edomites for them to fight. They reigned in a peaceful time in Israel's history. Now, so the idea of uh, donkey has peace. The idea of horse is warfare. And here Christ appears for warfare. The groom appears for warfare. But its, its color is white. And in apocalyptic literature, often white represents victory. That makes sense, right? The victor dressed all in white. Uh, the horse is white. It's this, this status symbol, right? He's the one that won, so he can now jump on the back of a fresh white war horse and ride into the city to the applause of his people. So when we read here that Christ appears for the wedding on a white horse, we have the idea of a champion. A warrior who is the champion riding into the banquet hall. We also see that his eyes are eyes like a flame of fire. Verse 12. And there, of course, eyes like a flame of fire has the idea of piercing the darkness, right? And there are a lot of places in Scripture where we think of Christ, the all-seeing. His eyes pierce the darkest depths of our hearts. He knows our sin. He knows our weakness. Here, I think it's something else. Here, his eyes are piercing the, the depth of the darkness of this world. So there's nothing out there that he cannot see. 
in fact, if we place him coming from battle victorious with eyes that pierce with fire, we might draw the conclusion that there were no enemies that escaped out there in the darkness, hiding somewhere to come back later because his eyes pierce that darkness. So we have him on this victorious champion's horse, his eyes of fire, he can see through. There's no demon slithering away into a cave who will come back later. No, his eyes pierce that darkness that he has left behind as he enters into the banquet hall. Verse 12 also tells us he is wearing on his head are many crowns. Isn't that an amazing statement? We've seen beasts and one of the heads of the beast has a crown on it or something like that. But, but here we have Christ the man and he is wearing many crowns on his head. It's an astonishing point being made. Especially when we realize that up to this point, when we've seen Christ wearing something on his head, now our, our English often translates it crown, but all the previous moments where we've seen that in Revelation about Christ, it has been the word in Greek for the laurel wreath. That is the victor's crown. Like you'd go to the Olympics and if you won, you used to get the crown, right? The, the crown of leaves. Now you get the gold medal. So that's what we've seen Christ having up to this point. The victor's crown. It's a good thing. But up to this point, this word has not appeared about Christ. It has only appeared in two places. It is the word in, in Greek, diadem. That is an emperor's crown. A king's crown. Not something you give to an Olympic winner. But that's that thing which sits on the head of the one who rules all things. And up to this point in the book, it's only appeared twice. In chapter 12, it appeared in verse 3 on the head of the dragon. And in chapter 13, verse 1, it appears on the head of the beast from the sea. Clearly, in both instances, Satan and this world power beast friend of his uh, are making a claim to something. They're claiming that they rule. That they have all authority. J just last night in our family devotions, we're in Luke, and we read of Christ's temptation in the wilderness, and, and uh, Holly and I were both struck by something. I guess we hadn't read Luke in a while. We'd been reading Matthew and Mark. So we, we were used to the, the wilderness temptation, but Luke puts a little twist on one of the things Satan says. When Satan shows Christ the kingdoms of the world, Luke says, in all of time. Satan's not showing Christ from a high up vantage point, Rome of Christ's day. Satan is showing Christ all the kingdoms of this world from Adam till Christ's return. And what does Satan say? He says, all authority has been handed to me over all of this. It's almost the same exact wording in the Greek that we find in Matthew 28 Greek from Christ's lips. Satan there is saying, all the kingdoms of this world, Christ, they belong to me. God gave up on this planet. I've taken control. 
or something like that is his claim. He claims that diadem on his head. And we see that very thing in Revelation 12. But now suddenly we read of the groom bursting through the door wearing many diadems. And the point should be clear. No longer does any other false claimant have a crown on his or her head. When the wedding happens and the and the groom shows up, he's the one wearing the crowns. And no other head will ever wear those crowns again. We also, we also read in verse 15 that he comes in with a sword and a rod. A sword and a rod. Not here the sword of the word through which the gospel comes to the nations. No more that sword. These are both symbolic for the judgment that he brings. He uses the sword to slay those that he judges guilty. And he uses the rod to crush those who are in rebellion. It's Psalm 2. And in fact, we have a a clear uh, reference, paraphrase of words from Psalm 2 at that point. Yes, Christ will subjugate and sovereignly rule over all the nations of the world even those who had slept with the harlot Babylon and found so much shelter under her robe and with her and the beast. It's not insignificant that here Psalm 2 is quoted. In fact, it's very powerful that it's quoted here. The kings of the earth had sought to place the diadems of sovereignty on their own heads. But we see Christ enter having taken them all and defeated all the kings of this world. He has now, when he enters for the wedding, laughed them to scorn. And that scorn has destroyed them. And verse 13, we find he's wearing a bloody robe. I, I think that's probably the line that is the biggest struggle for us all, isn't it? Here comes the groom. Right? Realize we have the reverse of what the ancient world had. We have here comes the bride. They had here comes the, the groom. And here comes the groom. Covered in blood. And that doesn't sound like a wedding feast we want to attend. It doesn't sound quite like what we would want him to be wearing Here's the the bloody robe. And if we want to understand what 13 is telling us, we have to look back at the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 63. And I'm actually going to be reading a, a large portion of Isaiah 63 scattered throughout the rest of today's sermon. So it wouldn't be a bad place to turn. Isaiah 63, we see a conversation. God appears... And has a conversation with his people. His covenant people as represented by Isaiah the prophet. And this is the conversation we hear. It begins with Isaiah representing the covenant people of God. They ask, who is this who comes from Edom with 
dyed garments from Basra, this one who is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength. Who is this? The response comes, I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garments like one who treads in the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me, for I have trodden them in my anger and trampled them in my fury. Their blood is sprinkled on my garments, and I have stained all my robes. For the day of vengeance is in my heart, and the year of my redeemed has come. I looked, and there was no one to help, and I wondered, uh, wondered that there was no one to uphold. Therefore my own arm brought salvation for me, and my own fury is sustained It sustained me. I have trodden down the peoples in my anger, made them drunk in my fury, and brought down their strength to the earth. You think maybe John was thinking of that? Remember just a chapter or two ago? I should have written down the reference. Just a chapter or two ago... In the book of Revelation, we saw Christ on the cloud. Christ was on the cloud, and he swept in his sickle. And the harvest of the earth was taken, chapter 14, 17, and following. And that harvest was put in the winepress of the wrath of Almighty God and was trodden. And Isaiah 63, God says, God who appears, by the way, says, and has God ever appeared at any time in any way other than in Christ? Doesn't Christ himself say that? That only in the second person of the Trinity has God the Father ever been seen. So when we see God visually appear in the Old Testament, it's it's what we call a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. So Isaiah 63, Isaiah rightly asks the question, I see a man coming. Who is this? And Christ responds, I've come from treading the winepress of God the Father's wrath, and I'm soaked in blood. Surely Christ is anticipating there, isn't he? He's not talking about a little judgment somewhere back in history. He's showing Isaiah, who, by the way, later in chapter 63, it'll be clear, Isaiah representing not only Israel as God's people, but he actually uses this phrase later in Isaiah 63. Doubtless you, God, are our father, though Abraham was ignorant of us and Israel does not acknowledge us. So here's one of those places in the Old Testament where the prophet is standing in the place representing not only Old Testament Israel, but the church of people that Israel did not know, who were far off, but now God has drawn near. And Isaiah then is getting the same moment that John gets in Revelation. 
Isaiah gets to stand and see the groom appear for the wedding. Not quite as wedding depicted, maybe, as it was for John, but that's what he sees. So we we look at these two things and we see the judge coming in bloody garments. it's, It's the way that Revelation shows us that the groom has already judged when he comes to his wedding feast. And not a long time. There's, there's not a huge period of time between one and the other. The idea is that he was out there judging and enters into the glorious feast. It's an event. He doesn't change in between. He comes to judge. He comes to marry. He comes in wrath. He comes to take a bride. And here he is in his bloody garments. He has dealt as he enters the wedding room with all his enemies. And all that is left is his eternal kingdom and his bride and his guests. Well, one last bullet point depicting him is his, he does have companions with him. The armies of heaven. And remember that this is This is apocalyptic literature so that two things can depict the same people at the same time. That's possible. And I think that's important to note because some, knowing that the bride is already depicted in her garments up in verse 8, say then that the armies of heaven surely refer to the angel armies of heaven. But look at that verse with me, verse 14, and notice, notice the emphasis on the clothing. They are clothed in fine white linen and clean. And again and again, Revelation has used that description to depict the saints, the people of God. So here we have, as he, in his appearance, we have this imagery of the redeemed saints of God, washed in his blood, clothed in his righteousness, who are more than conquerors through him. They're on white horses too. Did you notice that? They get the victor's horse as well. That, By the way, that's some king victor who not only can provide one perfectly white horse for himself, but can provide it for every foot soldier in all his armies is in the plural. Armies. That's some king. And all of his people, they too, are riding on these victory horses. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us and gave himself for us. And thus, thus they also are seen as those who have sat in judgment with him coming into the feast. 1 Corinthians 6 verse 2. Paul actually says, Don't you know that we will judge the world? And Paul says that as if it's something we should obviously... Well, obviously, we know that we will judge the world with Christ. We don't think that way, do we? Maybe that's a, maybe that's a good thing. We don't want to get vindictive or dark or let our sin taint how we think of judging the world. But it is important for us to know that on the last day, there will be all of his people sitting 
on either on his side to judge the world in righteousness at a time when we won't judge imperfectly. Well, we see the groom's appearance there. We see his names as well. Four things in the text about his name. First, and these aren't in order as the text is. I'm taking them out of order. But first, notice that he has a secret name. Verse 12. What is the secret name? Commentaries will wax eloquent one of two directions here especially. uh, And both very very persuasive arguments. Either one or both might be true. They're not mutually exclusive. Some commentaries uh, take you to Isaiah 62, 3, and 4, which would fit with our text, wouldn't it? Isaiah 62, 3, and 4, and in Isaiah 62 especially, there is comment about uh, secret name stuff. And there it seems to be pointing to an idea of the name being Jerusalem, or New Jerusalem. And so it could be the idea these commentaries say of Christ who represents his people bearing the name of the New Jerusalem that comes down out of heaven from God. Others make the argument, looking back at things said to the letters to the churches in Revelation chapters 2 and 3, that the name is Christ. And again, both make good persuasive arguments, but if you ask me, what does this name mean? I don't know. Because it's a name that's only known to Christ. Isn't that what the text... Aren't we funny creatures? God tells us right there that he has a secret name that no one knows except himself. And we say, let's figure it out. We, I don't know what name is there. But you know, that, that itself makes a point. Because in the ancient Near East, the thought was to know someone's name was to have some form of power over them. And some of that was mystical and magical, and there's still false religions around the world that have that kind of thought process connected with uh, naming something or someone. Uh, But even without getting into that, I think we can still understand it. I I heard a colleague of mine recently use this example. Uh, There's something going on out in the yard with all the kids uh, fighting or doing something they're not supposed to, and someone, uh, some neighbor looks out the window And she yells, I see you, Timmy. I know your mom. Right? There's a power in a name that's more than if she just yelled, stop it. Because what do the kids think then? We can run and she won't, we'll never get in trouble. We can keep doing it. We won't get in trouble. But when you throw that name in there, Timmy or Nathan, I'm not trying to pick on Timmy's here. Nathan, I know where you live. I know your parents. Right? There, there's an extra terror involved, in it, right? Because the power, there's now a power. You can get in trouble. So when we read in that kind of world that thinks like that, when we read that Christ has a name that no one knows but himself, no one has power over him. No one has power over him. 
he is wearing, after all, many diadems. I think there's another thing we can walk away from this with as well, though. If he has a secret name and no one knows, you don't know it, I don't know it, it's a reminder to us not, not to get proud in our walk with God and Christ. Sometimes I, I think we think we know everything there is to know about Christ. And if nothing else, this verse tells you, no, you don't. There's still stuff you don't know about Christ. And that should inspire us to dig into the word, not so we can figure out every little, but there's always more to know. So don't get lethargic and don't get lazy. This groom, you don't know everything about him yet. A hundred ages in his sight, the bride is still going to be amazed at who this gracious groom is. Well, we are given three names or three titles clearly to us in the text. One found in verse 13 His name is the Word of God. That could be a whole sermon, couldn't it? Not at the moment will be, but it could. The idea of the Word of God, this is His name. It shouldn't surprise us. John 1 tells us this as well. But just think of all the richness. Go home and meditate on that. The Word, in the beginning, the Word was God. The divinity of Christ, the groom. In the beginning, the Word spoke and creation came out. And in time and place, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory. And He dwelt among us to do something. He dwelt among us to recreate. To recreate a bride, a people for the Father. So when we hear that his name is the word of God, there should be so much, so much to meditate on. I I just did the the flyby. You've read the scriptures. Go read the Psalms. And those creation and redemption bullet points I just gave, fill them out. This is who this is. We also read that he has the name King of Kings and Lord of Lords. King of Kings and Lord of Lords, verse 16. Now, Revelation 17, 14. This is given as the reason why the Lamb overcomes. Remember that? Let's... You can just flip back one page if your, if your Bible has the same font I have. And we read in 1714 that Babylon and the beast makes war with the people of God. These make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb will overcome them. Why? For, He will overcome them for, He is the Lord of lords and King of kings. There's power in the name. Again, many diadems. And then the first name listed in the text, the last one 
we have to consider this morning faithful and true. So this one who's got secrets we don't know. This one who created and redeems. This one who is King of Kings and Lord of Lords is faithful and true. These qualities are so true about him that we can just use them as his name. Faithful and true. The groom walks into the room. His name is faithful and true. And we can know promises fulfilled. Promises fulfilled. Did he say it and will he not perform it? The obvious answer is yes, he will perform it. And he has made many wonderful vows of love to honor and defend his bride. He has sworn these things by himself. There's no other name or other creature by which he could swear that would be more consistent and more true. Think of a few of the promises he's made. He's promised to return and defeat our enemy. 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 8. To save us from abuse and defilement. That, that's clearly included in 2 Thessalonians 2 8. Talking about the Antichrist. He's promised his bride a safe home. 1 Peter 3.13, where righteousness dwells. He's promised to prepare that place for us. But he tells us that if he goes to prepare the place, we know that he'll come again. In Hosea 2, he promises that he will make a place where we will lie down in safety. And in Hosea 3, he says, I, actually, I think this is Hosea 2, I will betroth you to me in love. Has he made the promises and will he not fulfill them? Of course he will. Of course he will. And that's how all of this ties together, isn't it? We have the wedding feast set up and we have gory, bloody robes and we struggle with connecting those dots and we struggle with seeing the groom enter looking like this as a good thing. But what we ought to be doing when we read this is cheering. What will take place in heaven when these bloody robes appear in the doorway is relief and celebration. We ask, here's the father of the groom, here's, here are the, the guests, here's the bride, where's the groom? And we wait and we wait. And maybe we start asking questions like, where are the signs of his coming? And we look around us And we read the book of Revelation and we say, what if someone else comes instead? 
Where's the beast? Where's Satan? Where is his attack on us? And we might be left for this moment as we read prior to verse 11. A moment of thinking, here's the, here's the father, here's the host, here are the, the guests, here's the bride. What if Satan bursts through the doors and slaughters them all? Now, you, you may, I trust that most of you say, I've never thought that about heaven and eternity. Okay. But we struggle with that kind of thought now here below, don't we? When you share your, share your anxieties with me, and sometimes when I don't share my anxieties with you, about the culture in which we live. And we... We think, how long, how long until we lose our freedom of religion? Until we have to fear what's going to come through that door, uh, other than my daughter. And those things are all temporary, and we know that Christ has not promised that nothing will come through that door. And Christ has not promised that we'll have freedom of religion. And Christ has not promised that you won't be hated. In fact, he's promised you will be hated. You may be hated because of your views on sexuality, your views on social justice and, and what that should look like, your, your faith in Christ. Hopefully, you're hated for your faith in Christ. But all you have to do is take how you feel about all of those things and think that way for a moment in terms of here you're standing at this, this wedding hall and the groom hasn't appeared yet. There's the tension as then the doors are burst open. And is it Satan who comes through? No, it's Christ the groom. Well, but what will come after Christ the groom? Will Satan burst in later? Will he come in and maybe attack the bride? With the groom right? No. Well, how can I know that? Because the blood of Satan is on the robes of the groom. You see, we, we ought to have a sigh of relief when we see the groom walk in with bloody garments. Because we know that he has tread the winepress of the wrath of Almighty God. And that tells us two things. One, well, if ever you lacked assurance before and wondered if maybe you would be in the winepress... Guess what? It's been trodden. You'll never lack assurance in heaven. Not only because you're made perfect in Christ and glorified, but because you'll see that it's been done. And you weren't in it. He has trodden that. But also because no enemy will ever disrupt this wedding. Ever. No demon from hell will ever harm the bride and the groom for all eternity. Because their blood has been spilled, the groom didn't promise to love, honor, and cherish, cherish and protect you for all eternity, only to leave a question mark in your mind. When the wedding happens, he will have ensured there is nothing to harm you ever again.
So look at the groom. And rejoice in the beautiful things, the diadem. The horse. Rejoice in the lovely things, his names. And rejoice in the gory thing as well. Not vindictively towards those whose blood is on that robe. But rejoice in it. For it is the absolute yes and amen, the period at the end of the sentence of the gospel of salvation in Jesus Christ. He has made all things right when he shows up on time for his wedding. How do we, how do we respond to this? I mean, I've said we should sigh with relief, but I think... There are three things we can add as well. And these all come from Isaiah 63. What is the response of Isaiah and the people of God to seeing Christ say, Here I am with the blood of my enemies on me. What is their response? They don't cringe. What is their response? Three things. First, rest and rejoice. I've already emphasized that rest part, right? Sigh of relief. But rejoice as well. Rejoice as well. He has just said, I have trodden down the peoples with my anger. How does Isaiah respond? Representing us. Verse 7. I will mention the loving kindness. Oh, wait a second. He just trampled people in his wrath. And our response in heaven? I will mention the loving kindness of the Lord. And the praise of the Lord according to all that the Lord has bestowed on us. And the great goodness towards the house of Israel. Which he bestowed according to his mercies. According to the multitude of his loving kindness. For he has said, surely they are my people. Children will not lie. Who he became, uh, so he became their Savior in all their affliction. He was afflicted. In response to the gore, we should rejoice in our Savior and in his loving kindness towards us that we, we did not experience his wrath. Remember that word loving kindness in the New King James? I believe uh, New American Standard, I think, might be tender mercies. Uh, ESV is, I want to say, love, steadfast love. Um, all of them are inadequate for the Hebrew word. That Hebrew word, chesed, is the... It's the tender, loving kindness and mercy of our God towards those who are in covenant with Him. <laughs> we are to rejoice when we see Him for that reason. Second, we are also to repent and plead. We see that also, repenting and pleading. Uh, now, th this isn't as blatant as maybe we would have liked Isaiah to state the repentance side of things. But in verses uh, 11 through 13, he mentions the backsliding of God's people in the past. And he implies the backsliding of God's people very clearly 
in verse 17 for those today, that is the church, those who are not just Israelites. So repentance is on his mind as he sees this this king in all his glory show up in the room. Isaiah standing in the place of God's people representing us repents and he pleads he pleads that God would bring the people back he says in verse 14 the spirit of the Lord uh, the beast goes down into the valley the spirit of the Lord causes him to rest so you plead for your people to make yourself a glorious name And then in verse 17, return for your servant's sake. And what what is he returning? The tribes of your inheritance. So we are to repent, we are to acknowledge our sin, and we are to plead for revival. Plead that God would do his good work now, today, in anticipation of his coming in his gory robes. That's not something we're going to sing as the bride at the wedding feast. It will have all been done already. That means Isaiah is anticipating what we ought to be praying today before Christ returns. Repent and plead for revival. And then third, express desire for his coming. Now, don't express a desire for him to not show up because he's in gory robes. No, express a desire that he come like this. And this is what Isaiah says at the beginning of 64. In response to Christ in his gory robes, Isaiah 64, verse 1, Oh, that you would rend the heavens, that you would come down, that the mountains might shake at your presence as the fire burns brushwood. As the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, that the nations might tremble at your presence. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. Well, is that a revelation thought as well? Yes. We see this expression of desire for him to return in revelation as well. Indeed, in the last words of the book of Revelation. We read the following. And the Spirit and the Bride say, Come! And let him who hears say, Come! And let him who thirsts come. Whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming quickly. Amen. Even so, come. Lord Jesus. Is that your response to a groom in bloody garments? It should be. Come, Lord Jesus. Come to tread the winepress, yes. But come to take us as your bride. Having, of course, already prayed, forgive us our debts and bring revival, O Lord, and save to the uttermost. And then on that day, rejoice when you see him. Let's pray.